Welcome to Bio, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. Bio is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm Bio member Lisa Napoli in Los Angeles. On each episode, we'll talk with the biographer about his or her work. This week, a conversation with Leslie Brody. She's the author of the biography, Sometimes You Have to Lie, The Life and Times of Louise Fitzhugh, published in December 2020 by Seal Press. Born to wealth in the South and trained as a painter, Louise Fitzhugh is best known today for her 1964 book for kids about an 11-year-old aspiring writer named Harriet. Harriet the Spy has sold millions of copies. I myself have probably bought and given as a gift about a hundred of them. Yet even devoted fans of Harriet, like me, have been unaware of Fitzhugh's backstory till now. Leslie Brody hadn't read the book herself until the late 80s, at which point she became differently enthralled with both Harriet, the fictitious character, and her author. Well, before I started teaching, I spent many years in the theater. And just at the end game of my theater years, I was asked to write a adaptation of Harriet the Spy. And I had not read it. And I, so it was like, okay, all right, this will be my swan song. And um, <laughs> I read the book and I was like, <laughs> wow, this is a, like a date with destiny because I, I just had this instant rapport with the child in the book, but the adults and the, the environment. For somebody listening to this who may not know Harriet the way we know Harriet, can you just briefly describe Harriet? She is a kid being raised on the Upper East Side of New York with wealthy parents. She has a nanny. She is an incredibly curious child. She wants to know everything. And in fact, she's often standing in strange air places like on her bed or in her bathtub or outside yelling, I want to know everything, everything, everything. It's kind of like you know, Edna St. Vincent Millay. She's eager to, um, to do anything that will achieve this goal. And she begins to spy on the people in her neighborhood. Her nanny says, well, it's so good just spying, you know, you need to write it down. You need to make something of it. So she starts to keep a, uh, a journal. And she took notes on people to try to understand them all across a kind of class structure, spectrum. She noted these children who didn't have enough to eat, who were helped out by one of the little grocery boys who would bring them food. At the other end of the spectrum, she she, uh, smuggled herself into a a dumbwaiter to go up into the house of a very wealthy woman named Mrs. Plummer, who did nothing but lie on her back all day and eat chocolates and read mm, fancy magazines. And Mrs. Plummer was always complaining that she didn't have a job and that she wanted to be useful, but she couldn't think of anything to do. At the same time, Harriet's writing everything down. She's also writing about her schoolmates. And she is raw and she is, you know, uninhibited. And she says some pretty, very honest, but brutal things. Harriet's Upper East Side world was very different than the one in which Leslie Brody had grown up. I um, was born in the Bronx and I grew up 
um, on Long Island. My family uh, was on a very different sort of financial track than, than the Upper East Side world of Harriet the Spy. But somehow that's what I always wanted. You know, it's like, send me to a Swiss boarding school, mom. You know, just our eyes would glaze over. You've described Harriet really well now. Tell me what, as an adult woman, when you were charged with reading this book for the first time and adapting it. What was it that made you, after you did that, while you did that, decide that you were haunted enough by Fitzhugh that you would dedicate your time? And and let's go through the walk through how this biography came about. Sure. I've written a memoir, Red Star Sister, um, that is about coming of age in the 60s and 70s. I had suddenly uh, discovered a kind of talent, passion, affection. I was drawn to nonfiction in a way that I had not recognized that was, that it was even a path for me before. I'd always wanted to write fiction. I'd been a journalist and I thought, oh, you know, when this part is over, I'm going to write novels. Uh, (laughs) um, (laughs) And then I, I started teaching and it turned out I was teaching nonfiction. I was teaching journalism. I was teaching documentary film and I was teaching suddenly, you know, there was, I don't know, for 20 years or so, the lyric essay and personal essays, all this stuff was kind of in the zeitgeist. And I was kind of riding, riding that wave and I never did get to the fiction, but I was starting to think about who I wanted to know about after the, um, the memoir and I was very drawn to Jessica Midford, who uh, whose who's biography I wrote um, and uh, published in uh, 2010. And this was, although I kept saying, this is the first full biography of Jessica Midford. There were actually hundreds of books about Jessica Midford and the Midford sisters. And I had no idea when I kind of took my first steps into the world of of biography, that there were so many, many different ways of looking at a person and everyone has their own take and every generation has their own take. And um, so I really, so it was a great learning experience. I, you know, I tried to keep narrowing the book to just Jessica Midford in America, then Jessica Midford in California. I really, you know, I think I learned how to write a biography as a result of that book, which was, you know, my first attempt. And um, I was really fortunate because the estate, Midford's daughter and son have always said, well, everybody can have a go. Anybody who wants to can try this. You know, she can be seen so many different ways. You try, we open ourselves to you. And so I had that opportunity, but so did everybody else. You know, I mean, so I was pleased with my book. I was very happy that I had actually written one. It was seven, took me seven years. The research was extraordinarily hard. I thought I was gonna die most of the time the last couple of years. I started to think about, if you'll just permit me this ridiculous kind of um, uh, fantasy that I I developed over the years that as I grew to knew her, I kind of grew a second head. 
And so we were, we had like these two, two heads, you know, hers was invisible, but it, there was this conversation. And then as, uh, you know, the book grew and grew and got more developed, her head was almost equal to, you know, we were sharing this body. And then is finally this, I'm kind of finishing the book and starting to kind of have my own consciousness and, and you know singularity back her head's you know shrinking 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 no but there's like three or four years there where you're just a dual personality yes I, okay so that's just so i when i was i knew i wanted to keep i wanted to write another biography i had a list of all these people I thought, okay, now I kind of learn how to do it. I kind of know how to do it. I'd started attending the bio um, conferences, which I found incredibly helpful. I met some so many people there who have been marvelous. Um, and so many just great tips. Like you can't, you can't do your, your research first, see what you have and then start writing. You have to start writing. I mean, you just do, you have to do it simultaneously. And you have to, if you don't have some, if you don't have the right dialogue or, you know, bridge, you just have to, to my mind, make it up. It's a placeholder. You'll yes. find something there later. You got to get your narrative moving or you will take 20 years to write your biography. Yes. It may be a better biography if you wait 20 years. You you cannot know. But do you have 20 years? So this came around. Um, I found I was approached by a wonderful editor who was working at Seal Press, who I had worked with at CounterPoint earlier, who said, let's work together again. What do you have? Um, so I was very fortunate in finding a person with, um, you know, a sympathetic mind to mine. And it just turned out that Laura Mazur is absolutely enchanted and infatuated and in love with Harriet the Spy, like so many other women. And um, and she didn't know anything about Louise Fitzhugh. And we talked about it. I said, oh man, I've been hanging into that person for so long. I would so love to write about her, but I don't know anything about her. There was one, just one academic book um, that had been written about her. And it was mostly on her, about her, her books. You know, it was an interpretation analysis of her books very little about her personal life and nothing else, you know? Um, and, but that book uh, created a kind of um, framework for the, the story. And it was in that book that it was revealed that Louise had been a lesbian. So all her friends were still around when this other biographer had looked at her life and it was still, her life was still cloistered as were her papers too, what there were of her papers. Is yes. that? Yes. Yeah. 1988, you read this, uh, you read the book the first time. Years later, this editor, this is the dream of every biographer that an editor says, what do you got? Do it for me. And you, you say, let's look into this mysterious character who wrote a book, which is one of the most successful books, not just children's books, but uh books of all time. It sold millions of copies, right? Um, uh, it was YA before we called it YA. Mm -hmm. And so how did you, from there, proceed? Okay. And when was it that this editor had come to you and said, let's do it up till the book okay. coming out just in December, 2020? So I'm just fill in two things. So sure. when I did the, um, the adaptation, that was 1988. 
-hmm. And I was hired by the estate to do it in conjunction, collaboration with uh, the children's theater. So the estate actually picked me, but we were also told we could only do one production. So it ran for two weeks, three weeks, however long it it ran. And that was that. 20 years later, (laughs) the woman who had inherited Louise's estate had died. Her daughter is now in charge of the estate and remains in charge of the estate, decided that she would permit more productions. But here's this opportunity to write about her. And the the woman who is has inherited the Fitzhugh estate, I think is the daughter of the last lover of Louise Fitzhugh. Is that correct? And so all of a sudden you're in a position where you can mine this topic, but what it was there that you mined? Let's talk less specifically about what you've just said, which is terrific, but how did you go about writing the biography without access to certain papers and in what period of time, over what period of time did it take you to accomplish what you have now? Trump has just been elected. It's December of 2016. Where just what's happening? What's going on? Laura and I decide, let's do this within four years. We start in January of uh, 2017 and start to write a proposal. And the book is off and running by spring of 2017. So it's meant to get in by January of... um, So I worked with a researcher steadily for the first two years of the project, and she would find the data, names, addresses, and then I'd conduct over 60 interviews, and I spent the first two years of the project um, researching Louise's lives and loves. Here's what happened to help me do that. There are two things. First of all, um, I was really fortunate to meet Sandra Scapatone, who had not been... um, sympathetic to the earlier book for whatever reason, but she and I hit it off. Sandra Scapatone was Louise's, uh, well, she calls herself, she said their relationship was friends and lovers and friends. Mm-hmm. And they were friends. They were drinking buddies. They were, um, they were great companions in the Greenwich Village world of the late fifties, early sixties. Sandra and Louise uh, worked on the, their first book together, Suzuki Bean, which is a satire of Eloise in the plaza in which they set their child, Suzuki, um, in Greenwich Village. Sandra wrote the book, Louise illustrated it. So Sandra later co-wrote a book with Louise called Bang Bang, You're Dead. And that was an anti-war, anti-Vietnam war book that they published in 1969. Um, so Sandra had a very complicated relationship with Louise. They did love each other, but they fought terribly. Um, in any case, Sandra's still going strong. She's fantastic. And um, she was open to uh, interviews with me. So I was very, very fortunate. Once I was able to speak to Sandra, she opened doors for me to help me find who was probably the most important interview I did, and that is Alex Gordon. Alex Gordon lived with Louise for about 10 years. They considered themselves married. Alex had also given an interview 
to an, an incredible journalist named Karen Cook, who wrote an article in the Village Voice in 1993 about Louise, which was as you know revealing as anything had been up until that point, and really talked about her as a as a, a full on you know fully developed human being, as opposed to just a sort of one dimensional lady author who wrote children's books. Mm -hmm. um, so Sandra introduced me to, to Alex. Simultaneously, the estate was not um, interested in having Louise's privacy um, exposed. That was the that was the comment I got from them. We want to keep these things private. Meanwhile, um, they have been, you know, doing doing kind of spin-offs. There's a couple of spin-offs. There were more. They seem to be involved in um, <clears throat> the movie. Um, certainly, the Broadway show based on Nobody's Family Is Going to Change, which is a tap dance kid. Um, some. Harry the Spy spinoffs, etc., but not so. All these were books, but not Louise's life. So they wanted to keep Louise's life private. There were letters, not many. There was a limit to what I could quote if I didn't have, you know, the permission of the estate. So essentially, what I had to do was tell the story in my voice, and I heard this from friends at Bio. It's like, well, sometimes quotations can be a, um, a crutch. You know, start thinking about how your voice might be able to match what Louise's character is like. You can't speak in her voice, but how can you present that? How do you transmit the experience with Louise as the, the whipped cream and cherry on top? How do you give her a foundation so that she becomes the person who is being recognized? How did you do that? Did you feel, <laughs> did you feel, I know that's impossibly hard to summarize in just a moment, but did you feel the same way you did with Mitford where you grew this extra head <laughs> by the end of the time that you, you were working or how did you inhabit it? That's the challenge we all have because yeah. most of us are writing about people we've, many of us are writing about people we've never met, never will met, meet, never could. You know, I, I in really, in short, when I first started writing biographies, I really thought I was going to write the kind of biography like Jeff Dyer or Julia Blackburn, where you're in the biography, you know, you're, I'm here, I'm thinking this, I'm seeing this, I'm interacting with this. And I, I absolutely love those biographies. Um, they're as much fiction as anything else. And have you heard from, since the book's been out, from the, the people involved with the estate or any of the people in Louise's life? Well, Sandra Scapatoni told me she liked the book, so that was an incredible relief. I've heard from many of the people who I interviewed that they are very supportive and they liked the book. I have not heard from the estate. The, the book had to be, was a counter narrative to the estate. It was, you know, Lois was, um, Lois Moorhead was the person whom Louise left all her uh, her estate to, and they had been very in love. Um, and Louise made the her will out right at, right after she met her. You know, everything's going to you and your daughter. 
Um, and four years later, she died. And they, you know, who knows what might have happened. They weren't as quite the couple that they were in the beginning, but that's life. Um, but Louis, but um, Alex Gordon, who spoke to me for so many hours, um, gave me a counter narrative. So really the story told in my voice is about what, how Alex saw it. I got that from, uh, from also from my friends at bio, you have to go with what you have. Right, right. Which is very hard because we're very exacting and we want to know everything. And there are often competing and conflicting accounts. And there's black holes in the narratives, the things that we'll never find out. And so reconstructing a life is, is incredibly, incredibly complex. And it's a huge responsibility. I guess, I guess my last question for you is, and the reason, the reason I asked about the art is um, it feels like there are other pieces of Louise Fitzhugh that we haven't seen, don't know about. And I wonder, given that you have this 30 something year history with her, with her work, if you see that this, your biography is a final point or are there other pieces that might come out with which you would fantasize or would hope to be involved, like an art show, like public publishing manuscripts that might still be buried somewhere? Um, <laughs> that is for the future. I don't, I, I can't, that's not something I have um, any control over right now. I don't have uh, permission to put the paintings together. Understood. I would almost, I'd love it if I, if someone else wanted to pick up the torch and, and work with the estate and try to figure out a collection of her paintings, you know, the letters or anything. What I'm really happy about is that people know her now. They have, she's, she's been uh, exhumed. <laughs> she's a real person and she's yes. fabulous. That's Leslie Brody, author of the biography, Sometimes You Have to Lie, The Life and Times of Louise Fitzhugh, published in December 2020 by Seal Press. To learn more, please visit our website, biographersinternational.org. Enzo De Palma created our theme music. Cherie Newman is our podcast editor. I'm Lisa Napoli in Los Angeles. Thanks for listening to Bio.